Blog Talk Radio. You're at ACO Radio, American Communications Online, or any affiliated stations or websites are not responsible for what guests, hosts, or call-ins may say. All programming is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Hello, world. Welcome aboard, all you ground troops. Spin around smartly on the planet we call home, Earth, Gaia, in the Milky Way galaxy. We're all about helping others and service to others. And as we do this, we're people that are volunteers in the world, helping open source information on radio stations, helping out in various groups, including UFO Association, UAP Associates. Center for UFO Studies, Mutual UFO Network, and many, many others that are friends of ours that happen to have businesses as small business owners or they're artists or copywriters or editors or authors that are historians. And we're, uh, I'm a member of the Society of Professional Journalists and uh, historian with Ace Folklife, as is Jan Aldrich, and our great ufologist, and uh, we both became ufologists. Prior to that, we were government people working in vaults and doing security kind of things and taking care of a lot of paperwork. And I guess once it's in our system, it's hard to get it out because he's really been scanning a lot of information that he's been getting around the country and helping others that have been prior historians and ufologists. But let me let you tell talk to him. His name is Jan Aldrich of Connecticut, and he's been nice enough to, uh, we're very much in gratitude to him because uh, he's been nice enough to share his time with us and tell us what's going on in his reality and how uh, he foresees the future and what we're all doing to make the libraries better. So Jan Aldrich, can you hear me now? You're on live on radio. How are you tonight? Okay, and I can hear you fine. Um, so what I've been doing is I've been holding off uh, sending uh, files to uh, to David Mahler in New Mexico because he has a he has a huge collection that he's trying to uh, assimilate into uh, his and the Kufos files. So uh, Antonio Huenas, who is uh, um, uh, used to be uh, on uh, uh, on the radio, um, and who uh, has given talks worldwide and visited ufologists worldwide, uh, he sold his uh, the rest of his collection to David Mahler and. David is trying to uh, combine his material with uh, with his collection in New Mexico. So I've been holding off sending him anything more. So I've been building up. I got uh, I've got piles that I've been maintaining um, because sometimes uh, here I have files from. People like Dr. Willie Smith, um, uh, NICAP Connecticut. Uh, I've got some from Ray Fowler. 
Uh, I've got some from Keith Basterfield in uh, Australia. Uh, and, uh, and many, many others. And so I'm trying to put them all together in, uh, in a master file um, for each case. So sometimes I have, you know, one case like uh, uh, Ruddlesheim. I, I must have, everybody must have a file on that. And sometimes they, they all have something unique that the other files don't have. So this is this is kind of interesting. Uh, uh, we keep coming up with new facts by doing this too. Uh, 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 Willie Smith was actually working for Heineck uh, towards the end of Heineck's life, and he ran something called the Unicat. So uh, he said. I made the operating system, and Heineck told me what to put in the uh, what what cases to put in, and he had uh, 57 codes that he used. So uh, uh, this is this is quite interesting. Um, and then uh, I went to Rice University just recently, and. Uh, this is apropos to NASA getting involved in UFOs. Um, the the uh, French Space Agency, uh, uh, Dominic Weinstein was working with them and he put together a number of uh, <clears throat> uh, databases uh, and uh, down at the Rice University, they had about 10 of them, so I copied those. I also had some others that he and I worked on together. So we're close to 13 databases working on uh, uh, UFOs and aircraft. And one of the things the French Space Agency was interested in was... Uh, uh, aircraft safety and Dominic had put together uh, 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 when he worked for NARCAP it was NARCAP report number one uh, a list of UFO cases where the uh, the UFO had cut in, uh, across the nose of the plane or where it followed the plane, or where it paced the plane, or where the UFO went around the plane in different ways, either vertically or horizontally, um, and other things that brought it in close proximity to the plane. Well, when uh, NASA announced this, of course, everybody's saying, oh, it, they're going to investigate it extraterrestrials and everything. No, they're not. They are, one of the things they said they will investigate was close encounters to planes, air safety. They had, they said they were working on 11 cases that they had accumulated. I thought that was rather interesting because Dominic had 300 
and on almost all continents, and not just from uh, governments that are friendly to the United to uh, the United States or France, but from other governments. So it's quite a quite a database that he had accumulated. Um, and of course, one of the things the French space agency was worried about was distractions in the cockpit from these uh, from these UFOs coming close to the plane. They were worried about you know pilot's job is to, to pilot the plane and land it safely, and then they've got some kind of outside source impinging on them. And so the French space agency was worried about that. Um, and they did several uh, studies, including one that I do not have a copy of. I'm trying to get a hold of it. It was uh, radar visual cases. Uh, their thing was to attempt to uh, figure out how close the UFO was uh, using radar, they had such so um, because of the stigma of UFOs, it was it's sometimes hard to get information out of official sources, even if you're the French Space Agency and you have your own people. Um, but they were they did have a number of cases, and they did look at how close the how close the object was according to the radar. They found out that most of the time, the pilots, when they estimated how close the UFO was, um, the radar uh, readout uh, mostly uh, they coincided. So whatever the radar said, the pilot was pretty pretty close estimating where, how far the UFO was away from the aircraft. So, so that's that's one thing they were interested in. Now, uh, before the NBC Nightly News had done a report where they said. Uh, the French, uh, the uh, NASA was the first space agency to look into this. <coughs> On uh, NBC Nightly News, and I, uh, I have to say that no, it wasn't. And uh, Heineck got information from the. Indonesian Space Agency, uh, Colonel Sultan, uh, about uh, UFOs that he had investigated in Indonesia. And he was the head of the uh, Indonesian Space Agency. Besides that, as I've already said, the French Space Agency has been doing this for almost, uh, well, over two decades now. So they've had they've had a an investigative unit. It's gone by various names: Guy Pan, Sepra, uh, Gpan, Gpan. So it, there there's several 
there's there's three different agencies, and they have, to a certain extent, each one is taking uh, investigated UFOs in a different way. Dominic Weinstein uh, works for the DST, which is kind of similar to our FBI, and he was working uh, with the French Space Agency, with or for, depending, and uh, so his his work uh, about 2011. That's that's uh, when he ceased uh, working for them. Uh, but anyways, he's compiled a huge amount of cases, case files, specifically uh, problems like uh, national security and UFOs, as far as uh, aircraft sightings, um, electromagnetic problems, of course, the close encounter items, um, unusual uh, maneuvers, uh, types of things like this. So, uh, uh, like I say, I have I have a few of his uh, databases and investigations. He did investigations with uh, uh, um, scientists and uh, engineers at the at the French Space Agency, mostly during the uh, tenure of. Uh, Serpra. So, uh, I think what our uh, space agency should do is get together with the French because they're they're years ahead of what this new NASA uh, investigation is starting. What is that? Do you think that well, uh, they, there was a tin can? They, 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 they're about? saying they're 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 about ready to spend a hundred a hundred thousand dollars on a nine month investigation. But from Which reading is, some of the some of the material I've seen, they are specializing into uh, uh, near misses and things like that with aircraft UFOs and aircraft on on what 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 are they basing their investigation on prior history uh findings of fact that were based on sightings do you know or is it yes yeah that's that's exactly it they they like they said they already have 11 11 uh observations that they're uh they're looking at um, like I say, though, if you look at the French Space Agency, uh, the American, the Americans are a little late to the table. Of course. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, we had it. We had it like you and I both know, because we entered classified material. There, it was only for the need-to-know basis, and for some reason, I guess the Pentagon, Department of Defense, we still 
we're playing the game around, you know, who is controlling the planet, the Russians, the Chinese, or who had the, the bigger nukes. I don't know. But you tell us, why do you think we're behind uh, the rest of the world with releasing UFO documents as far as uh, our public consumption. Well, if you source. remember, in 19, uh, about 1973, Jimmy Carter, because he had his own UFO sighting, right? he asked NASA to look into UFOs. Um and NASA politely declined to do that. And they said to Carter, if we could find a physical, uh, something physical that we can analyze in a laboratory, we will look into UFOs. Um, I don't think that's what the president wanted, but he didn't push it. You know, well, he didn't have uh, the investigative power. Did he well, create he's the a task force? The United States. He he's the president of the United States. The administrator of NASA serves at his pleasure. So sure. it's kind of it's kind of uh, a very uh, ballsy to say uh, we're not going to do what you want us to do. Um, but well, they did. And they got away with it. And I think somebody else besides Carter, uh, they wouldn't have got away with it. Um, well, anyways, right, right after that, that's when that's when people started coming up with all these crash saucers and everything. Okay. That, that is a well, prelude to crash saucers. NASA says they want some kind of uh, evidence and... Everybody came out from the, under the rocks, and they had all these items that they wanted. Uh, they said were pieces of UFOs and crashed UFOs, and uh, almost none of them had turned out to be anything uh, unusual or not terrestrial. Um, but... Uh, you found that you're going off in a different direction there for a while. Um, well, tell us when you think, do you think all the stuff we've got with Carl uh, Lorenzen and her husband back in Wisconsin before Mutual UFO, uh, yeah, before Mutual UFO Network got started up there, uh, the gentleman that left uh, for the Wisconsin University, when she and her husband, they lasted for, you know, how many years? Because uh, she saw one, what, 34, maybe? She saw one before, in, yeah. She saw one uh, yeah, before 1947. Maybe it was 43. She, yeah, she saw one right, yeah, she saw one in 1933, but she saw one right, uh, right before Arnold. Okay, also. and so she, you know, tell people who she was before she... I mean, her husband was important too, but she she had a sighting and then started working at the local newspaper, but realized how much there wasn't, and she just sort of got into like a hobby of collecting before. But I think her working right, for a newspaper gave her credibility to start that the group. Yeah, of, she uh, uh, she she got interested about fifty one or so. 
Maybe a little before that. <clears throat> That's the year I was born. So I've been and I, the started, last few days uh, picking around. She started picking up news stories on that, on the UFOs, and uh, uh, so she started hearing about local stuff around there. Now, uh, I talked to C.B. Moore, Professor C.B. Moore, and he was working on, uh, he was working for General Mills at the time. He said some of her uh, UFOs were our balloons, but she was, she quickly built herself uh, a a national, network of people sending in UFO reports from all over the country and then quickly it it uh, blossomed into an international thing and she was very uh, uh, she, she was able to uh, get a lot of material from South America even though there were a lot of South American news journalists, American journalists in in South America, uh, very very few items from South America made it into U.S. newspapers. Uh, but she was able to get the new newspaper clippings, and then able to recruit investigators in many South American countries to uh, send her material, investigate cases, and uh, uh, generally build up a network of people in South America. Um, So Richard Hayden was uh, her assistant editor and he had all kinds of contacts in South America also and he uh he spoke he was fluent in Portuguese and Spanish so that also helped out uh in translations and things in correspondence um so they had uh uh representatives in Venezuela Argentina um uh Brazil uh sometimes Uruguay sometimes they didn't have people in Uruguay uh they had some people in Chile and uh one of her uh, he was supposed to be the successor uh Richard Green Greenwell in uh, Peru, and he started UFO Peru. Um, he was working in Peru, uh, I think, as an uh, instructor uh, in in college. And one day, this uh, Peruvian Air Force officer in his flight suit uh, walked into his office and told him that he had just um, a UFO. So... Uh, he he started his own um, uh, UFO uh, um, affiliate down in Peru, and uh, 
when he came back to the United States, he had quite a, fi- a bunch of files, and Tom Toline went out there and him. And then I interviewed him on the phone a couple of times as to what his what he did in South America. Not he just didn't stay in Peru. He went around. He talked to the uh, um, uh, Brazilian. Uh, uh, Air Force, and he talked to the the, uh, Argentine Navy and the Argentine Air Force, and both of those had uh, UFO projects. The Navy investigated things around their bases or things on the sea, and the Air Force uh, more or less investigated everything else. Uh, in Argentina. And so uh, he said they weren't really rivals, but um, cooperation was like in the United States, you know, uh, there's sort of a a rivalry at a certain level. But, um, yeah, and he also went to Chile, and so he uh, he traveled around in South America quite a bit. So so uh, Coral had all this all these uh, resources down there. Um, she also had people in Australia. Um, Peter Norris, who was the head of the Victorian uh, State uh, UFO uh, group. And then he became the uh, um, Australian, the whole Australian uh, representative for Australia, but he also became the head of all the groups in Australia. That didn't last very long. But anyways, she had a lot, and she had uh, um, Sergeant Harold Fulton in the New Zealand Air Force, and the New Zealand Air Force let him investigate cases outside the Air Force's uh, uh, jurisdiction. In other words, uh, they said, you can't, inv- you can't go on base and inter- interview uh, what we're doing, but uh, it's okay for you to talk to people that uh, are not in the military. So that's what he did. So they kind of gave him a, a carte blanche um, to do that while he was on duty. So he had uh, he had extensive files, and he kept Coral um, updated on what was going on in New Zealand. Um, she had representatives in France, uh, England, um, Canada. She had a lot of people in Canada. And there was there was a UFO, uh, an APRO Canada. There was an APR Mexico. Um, and so there there were a lot of uh, people all over the world that were sending her um, material. And APRO lasted until the into into the eighties. 
Um, then her husband passed away. Then her daughter. And then she did. And while she had set up several people to take over, uh, she had never really named a successor. So uh, when she died, the organization came to a, a, a halt, really. And their material went into uh, um, storage. And that's where it still is. Now, they did make, uh, when she was still alive, they made um, three microfilms of case files starting from before 1947 up to the time that the microfilm project ended in 1972. Uh, So there were three... Um, microfilms where they had reproduced the case files. Unfortunately, two of those are lost. But we do have one. Brad Sparks had a copy. When I heard he had a copy, I said, let's make copies of that so it doesn't get lost like the others. So that's what we did. So we made a number of copies. So I have a copy uh, which is now at Kufos. <laughs> Several other people have copies of from uh, um, <clears throat> pre forty seven up to ni- December nineteen fifty six. Um, so the other two microfilms from January. 57 up to 72 are lost. So uh, that's unfortunate. However, a lot of the cases in the files were passed around to other organizations. So they they shared files. So there is some in the NICAP files and also in the CUFOS files. And other people that were investigators, they kept copies. So it's not completely hopeless, but right now the the materials in storage and the people that have custody of it, um, occasionally they let one or two researchers see items, but it's essentially off limits. Well, do they have a list of UFO researchers, or you just have to be let them know you're coming into the area. How, what would be the procedure? No, no. You, uh, no. They, they let Philip Mandel have, uh, you know, I'm talking about, From you know, UK. very limited, very limited access. Philip Mandel was interested in Pascagoula, the, uh, the abduction. Yeah, Calvin Parker. Calvin Parker. Yeah, I know Philip so, Mandel, at least in social media. He's from the UK, but did he come yeah. over to to Illinois, or where did he? Uh, he is, come he in? has been he has been uh, he's been gathering material on uh, the Pascagoula uh, incident for for years, and he's writing a book. And he wrote to APRO because they investigated that quite closely, so he got their files, the APRO files. So that's one case where. 
they got they got some files. Um, uh, the private Irwin case. Um, it's another abduction. Uh, the person was writing a book on that, and he was able to get a file. Um, Mark Rodiger went there and requested, so he, he met with the people that have it, and he requested some items, and they let him see a few items. And then Jacques Vallée is, uh, I think, quite close with them, so they've let him see a number of files, but and that's probably the biggest amount of, of material that's been uh, given out is what what uh, Jacques has. So uh, you can see it's quite limited as to what uh, what people can see of the uh, the main files. Um, now. Uh, John Musgroves in Canada, he got a grant from the Canadian government. Canadian government is quite unusual. They uh, they want to protect cultural property and things like that. And while they not might not agree that UFOs are real, they gave uh, Musgraves at the time are quite big grant to go around uh, Canada and the U.S. and uh, copy Canadian files in other UFO um, organizations. So, uh, of course, Musgraves, uh, Musgraves was uh, he was one of the one person that was designated to take over from Coral, um, but then she changed her mind. But anyways, he went to APRO and stayed there two weeks and copied Canadian files. And he went to NICAP and slept in NICAP's office and copied files there. So he went uh, he went all over the country copying files, chasing down cases, and uh, the money was provided by the Canadian government. Uh, this was in the 70s. So I went to see, when Project 1947 started, he, uh, he, he said I could come up and look at his files. So he let me, and I brought a copier with me. It wasn't the best, but it was, you know, it was portable. And at the time I went up there, uh, portable files with uh, Xeroxes and stuff were, you know, that's not, they weren't, they were pretty huge. So I went up there with a file and I copied a number of things in his Canadian files. Um, and a lot of them were from APRO files because they had a lot of people in Canada um, and from an early time, you know, the APRO started publishing the bulletin in 1952. So uh, uh, NICAP didn't come into ex into existence until 1956 and, and didn't publish their 
uh, newsletter until uh, 1957. So there's a gap there that APRO filled. <coughs> Plus, like Lauren Gross said, he said, I have seen the APRO files, and he was just talking about what we have today. He wasn't he didn't he wasn't privy to what Lorenzen had, but we like I said we have the we have the microfilm and we have other material. He said, I saw the APRO files, I saw the NICAP files, and I saw the Project Blue Book files when he started writing his uh, UFO history series. He said, except for those cases that got a lot of publicity, the three files were different. There wasn't much overlap. APRO had their own cases that they got and people investigated for them. NICAP had their cases that people investigated and the Air Force had their cases from Project Blue Book that they investigated. And it was very little overlap. Except those cases that got a lot of publicity, say like the Socorro case, um, uh, uh, and uh, Desverges and a number of other cases like that uh, uh, that were in the national news, the Killian case, the airline case. So uh, other than that, he said the three, those three organizations did not have a lot of overlap. And then there were, of course, there were other uh, smaller UFO organizations. Uh, <clears throat> they got, uh, NICAP got the uh, CSI Los Angeles cases, about 2,000 cases. And uh, they were the same, they were early when APRO was operating in 52, 53, 54. Um, their case files weren't the same as APRO got. So um, uh, now that we're putting together this giant archives, uh, I can confirm what Lauren said. What he, is, he was exactly right. Of the material we've got from other UFO organizations, there's very little overlap except the most the cases that got the most publicity, yeah, everybody's got everybody's got a file about that. But a lot of cases, it's just what the which organization was able to get an investigator out there, or get the uh, UFO clippings and things like that. So. Uh, so the Air Force didn't had had their cases, and NICAP had their cases, and APRO had their cases. How did you and become a cross-reference being our investigator? Because you're very, I mean, you were definitely recommended by Dr. Bruce McAbee to, you know, head up or help me with this since Stanton Friedman died and 
he was getting up there in years, but you know, we he helped us get organized to do all this in cyberspace culture or the internet or with the UFO association. But, you know, there was only so many people that were truly qualified and uh, you, because you had such a cross reference of various government agencies in the past in association with, I guess you started with NICAP or you knew the story Anyway, because yeah, I started, your father... Uh, the, the first organization I joined was NICAP. I joined NICAP, and then I joined APRO. All right. So, well, let's... Uh, NICAP was the first one. In ufology, and then, then uh, we need to make sure, even in the... Uh, some of these people are starting their own uh, blogs or their own organizations, but I don't know how many people are in them or helping them, but... Some of the blogs are really nice, and they're saving uh, information. There's the. Are you familiar with UFOEvidence.org? You're in there. I'm not. As you are, as a researcher, UFO evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they have a few items that uh, they mostly use stuff that's already been published, but. Uh, they have some things that they found on their own. Uh, there's a UFO uh, uh, website called uh, Think About It. Right. Um, and so yeah, they have that. material from all over the world. Um, and so um, I've been using their cases as placeholders because um, – a lot of these, uh, there's things probably in the NICAP files or elsewhere. Um, like Keith, Keith Basterfield sent me a, a, a thumb drive of cases in Australia that he looked at. And uh, on my site, I've got uh, uh, Bill Chalker has written some of the things he couldn't put in his book. Uh, one of the articles is UFO Sub Rosa in Australia. Um, and so uh, he was the first one to get sub, a substantial amount of material out of the uh, Australian government. Um, in fact, I just found in in the uh, National Archives of Australia a list of things he found in government files that he was allowed to look at. And then later on, uh, Keith Basterfield, uh, he, he and his group, when they had the, when they had the similar to what our freedom of information is in Australia, he started getting material out of their archives and he's retrieved a huge amount of arterial material. And both of those guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, were associated with uh, UFO groups in their states. So they they also had big files of their own. So, um, so in Project Blue Book, there's a whole bunch of cases from Australia. Um, the Australian Air Force uh, sent 
the American Air Force a whole bunch of cases. So uh, I sent some of these to uh, Keith Basterfield, and he said, you know, uh, some of these cases you sent me, we haven't been able to find them in the uh, Australian archives. So uh, that's how we, uh, you sending us these cases from Blue Book is how we know anything about them. And uh, vice versa, uh, we found several cases, they found several cases in the Australian government's UFO investigation involving Americans that were over there as pilots or, uh, you know, exchange people or even uh, NASA in 1965 investigated one case in Australia, which was really unusual. Um and uh and he the uh australian the uh the scientist was at the american embassy and there was this case where there was a light in the sky the guy thought it, it was a it was a satellite so he's watching it um this other light comes straight at it and they collide and the first light becomes very bright afterwards. And so the American scientist, the uh, scientific attache at the, uh, at the uh, American embassy in Canberra went out there and questioned this guy and sent his results to the Department of State, which got into Blue Book. So uh, that's amazing. Uh, also, we had, now after Blue Book ended, we had uh, a secret base in Australia in, in, uh, in the Northwest Territories. And it was, it was uh, joint Australian-U.S. base, but mainly it was... Uh, the uh, mainly was run by Americans, and they had a UFO sighting there. And the Australians asked them to fill out a uh, asked the Americans that made the sighting to fill out a UFO report. So, uh, and that was from the Navy. So that's how we know about this Navy report. Even though it's in Australia, it's in their uh, UFO files. So this is kind of uh, kind of an interesting. And of course, we're finding out too that uh, um, there were a couple of cases in Ethiopia. We had a secret base in Ethiopia, which is it's not Ethiopia any longer, but at the time it was. It's in Eritrea now, um, but it was a secret base. It had a couple of UFO reports from that uh, that were submitted because they were Army cases. They were submitted to the Army, and they weren't classified. So somebody in Army intelligence sent copies to NICAP. So... 
Um, uh, that's interesting. And, uh, because they had meteorologists at that uh, base in Ethiopia, by looking at the APO, I recognized that APO. I, I said, because the, the report did not say what country it was in. It just said the Army Post Office, and of course, um, the military has their own mail service, so they don't send stuff through foreign mail. They have their own mail service. So I looked at the APO and I said, "This is this is Ethiopia, and this is the base that I'm familiar with because we had meteorologists." So I was able to identify that one. It's in the NICAP. In the UFO evidence by Richard Hall, a 1964 edition, if you uh, uh, go there and look at the Army sightings, you'll find the sightings. It doesn't identify where they come, but knowing the uh, APO, so that that was interesting. and of course, there were there were sightings in uh, Antarctica, and let's see, uh, Robertson Island. Boy, we got that wrong. We thought it was Robertson, and, and uh, John wrote it up, and then we found out it was Robertson Island. It was the, on the other side of Antarctica. But anyways, the Chileans had had a a sighting there, and it was in the newspapers in Chile. This is 1956. There were other sightings in 65, but this is 1956. This is earlier. There's two famous Chilean Antarctic uh, explorers and and some other people on the expedition saw a UFO, and they also had effects from the UFO. So when they got back. Uh, they were questioned, and they uh, they You're filled out away. an Air Force report form. They filled out an Air Force report form, and that was apparently sent to the to the U.S. Navy. And the Chilean Navy is still miffed from what I read in Dr. Haynes's files. They're still unhappy. He never heard back from the American Navy. <laughs> so this is very international, right? It's a very international. I don't since right, you don't right. get paid, it's a hobby. So most people need to know that if they write a book, and uh, the way that it's distributed these days, print on demand, basically through Amazon, is the largest, I guess, known. Paid on print on demand distributor in the world through Amazon, but you just don't make much, folks. Uh, even though you write a UFO book and you make a lot of money, almost nobody yeah. did. I think uh, Leslie Kane made some money with her book because it was a bestseller for a while, yeah. yeah. And I've seen lately, so, uh yeah, it's mostly people putting their own money out, folks, to promote their own hobby as right. a domain a name, which gives you your 
address to get to in Google. It's the address. And then your hosting website, wherever you have your data, are on a blog mainly because I would say 40% of the world still use WordPress, which is a nonprofit organization, but you get your little place in space to have like at least a flash page or what used to be called your front page. And, got, you know, Google offers them for like $12 a year or something, about a dollar a month. So you can have a page with your address and your uh, company hours and things like that. But what we're talking about is the people that actually do the work and the research and they put their information together in the one place throughout history in the past anyway, before AI, I guess, was we put it in books so we could uh, save the data or save the information. And now, of course, we've had the you know Gutenberg Press and the Bible was probably the most well-known book in the world. But what Jen and I are doing our best to do is keep the word UFO out there, even though UAP is now, I guess, after post-COVID pandemic, uh, it seems to be we came out with a change of mind and a change of reality in the year 2020. I don't know if anyone noticed or not, but we were sort of shut down around the world uh, <laughs> with COVID-19. Uh, am I even allowed to say that on the air, Jan? I don't even know anymore what's legal and what's not. But we do our best as journalists, researchers, historians, and radio show hosts to provide you information. And Jan, uh, Jan, you've never put just one book with all of your Project 1947 gatherings on, and you have a gentleman in Australia that helps you archive your database, right? But yeah, have you ever thought about grabbing yeah, so, all the yeah, data? Uh, most most everything goes on the uh, Project Forty Seven website, and that's for free. So it's not a book. We're not trying to make money. It's We're open source information. information. That's right. Uh, open source information. About, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're talking about. Um, uh, UFOs in other countries that appear in records of another country. Uh, one of these things was uh, there's a Project Blue Book file. I think it's about 1965. Uh, Polk Air Force Base. And uh, there's a, a very short file of a sighting over Polk. But there's recently been a book written in Chile about the Chile investigation. Now, they have a full-blown investigation in Chile. And some of this material has been put into a book down there. So I got a copy of the book. It's in, Sp it's in Spanish. So I'm looking at this... Uh, Polk Air Force Base um, item, and it's in the Project Blue Book files. It's very short, and in the uh, in the Chilean book, here's a here's a long discussion of the the uh, the case. And it's got drawings and maps and things. 
and uh, uh, the Chileans were involved in this case to a certain extent. So they apparently have their files are more extensive than Project Blue Book's files. So that was very interesting. So our claim to fame in the United States of America is still, I guess, the books we've written are the Project Blue Book, our Freedom of Information Act. You want to explain all that and then how, uh, how you're archiving clippings. People need to know about if they made a newspaper. Tell people what you're scanning, too. Okay, so um, oh, let's talk about the uh, um, uh, the pop-up UFO. Uh, this is at uh, uh, Merced's, California, uh, around uh, – it, it, it's at several – it wasn't at just one place because it's it's uh, it's interceptors trying to uh, chase a UFO. So it's in any case, um, uh, the case is in Blue Book. It's very short, and so when Lauren Gross started to put his UFO history together. Um, he he got this. He got the case in Blue Book, and he found out that Doctor McDonald from the University of Arizona. Well, let me uh, let me back off of this first of all. He had the case from Project Blue Book. Um. Then I went to the National Archives and copied material from the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, which from 53 to 56, in actually into 57, investigated cases for Project Blue Book within the United States. So they went out there they just didn't have what Project Blue Book had. They sent investigators out to cast Air Force Base in California, and they did an on-the-spot investigation. And their investigation has the pilots' names. And so, uh, independently, Dr. James McDonald at the University of Arizona he met one of the pilots. Now, the pilot did not remember the date correctly. He said it was another date, but he told McDonald about the UFO case. So, Lawrence got the Project Blue Book case. He's got the, uh, the item from Dr. McDonald, and he's got the name of the pilot. And then I sent him what I found at the National Archives from the 4602nd. So he put those together. He saw that the name in, in McDonald's interview was the same name as the Castle Air Force Base 
So it wasn't 1957, it was 1956. He's got the date. He's got the pilots' names. He's got their drawings. Um, and uh, radar on the ground did not pick up the uh, uh, the UFO. There were two F-86D fighters. These are fast fighters for the time. Uh, uh over over California. So the uh, radar people call the uh, aircraft and say, hey, uh, we don't have anything on radar, but people are calling us up and saying there's some kind of UFO just under the cloud layer. So these two pilots are not in the same place. So they rendezvous and one goes high and the other one goes low. One's over the under uh, the uh, cloud layer and one's under. So the one under heads towards the UFO. As the UFO uh, as he's approaching the UFO, it goes into the clouds and comes out the other side. So the guy that is over the cloud layer, sees it, and heads towards it. And so the UFO goes back into the clouds and comes out underneath again. So, and people on the ground are calling the radar station, telling them what's going on. They're watching it. And that, and from the newspapers, some of this got into the newspapers. So Lauren was going to the library and, looking at newspapers in several towns out there in Cal in California and getting the accounts of what the people on the ground were seeing. <clears throat> so now he's combining all this stuff into a big ball of of wax and writing it in his book. And so from four different sources, newspapers, McDonald's interview, Project Blue Book and 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, he gets a, a pretty total picture, except for one except. Uh, in 1968, as the Condon Committee is ending, Paul Harvey, if you remember Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, Paul Harvey was doing a special program on UFOs, and he was going. The Condon Committee was wrapping up, so he was going to do a special uh, uh, program on UFOs outside of his news program. One of the guys he asked to uh, be in on that program was one of the pilots from Castle Air Force Base UFO case. And he said something that was not in the Project Blue Book, nor in the uh, 4602nd, nor in McDonald's interview. He said he got a momentary radar 
uh, lock on the object. And he said when the when he got the radar lock, he looked at the object, and it became dimmer and smaller. And he said, and that was, and that was in the interview. We don't have the the uh, the uh, um, we don't have the the radio program. It was never run on the radio. <clears throat> so we're looking for this. But uh, it did describe the uh, in the NICAP UFO investigator about what the pilot had said in his interview. They're saying, well, I want to hear his voice say this. If we could find this Paul Harvey thing that was never shown or never used, in the, um, that would be a great thing. But already we have four different sources on this thing that give us different information, and so that. Well, he was a he was a veteran, and he served our country from forty three to forty four, and was in World War Two. Now, you want to tell people more about he was an American radio broadcaster, folks, for ABC, but. Uh, Paul Harvey used to come on the radio, and you had to listen. I had to listen to him. I listened to him when I was working for TRW doing record checks, Great Lakes, Illinois, outside of the Navy base there. Uh, but what uh, does it say how he got into the UFO talking about? He, uh, he, he may, I, I, I've read things that he was, he was interested from 19. 19- from uh, back in the Second World War days. Okay, so he was uh, interested I, I don't know in this. I, I don't have anything that tells me that in writing. Uh, Wendy uh-huh. Connors said she had something in her files that said Paul Harvey was interested because he heard about Foo Fighters in 19... Uh, when he was over in Europe. I don't have anything in writing of that. I would like to get that too. That's another thing about Paul Harvey. But he had trust the rest he of would the have story. UFO, he, if, if something came up and he thought it was interesting in, in UFOs, he would put it on his news program. Now he also okay. had another program, the rest of the story. Right, trust. He would he would talk about things in history that you know people didn't know the rest of the story, or the things that he had researched that he found out new things about uh, people in history that was essentially not well known. And he had a whole yeah, program on that. Every day he came in, and he said, you know, he'd do Paul Harvey news, and he. You know, uh, I I forget how he closed out, but uh, he closed out his other program, the rest of the story, with, and that's the rest of the story. Well, he got famous. uh, He was a a very, he he was a very influential newsman, and he was very popular. Yeah, he had boots on the ground like a prior veteran, but he actually scaled a fence. Uh, at Argonne, I've been to the Argonne National Laboratory 
uh, and to solve a small, like a hadron collider, they explained to us what they did. But, you know, he jumped the fence and he got apprehended. And now that was before I was born, uh, nine, February 6, 1951. <laughs> so he was like uh, trying to find out what they were doing in there. So he was called participatory journalism on the FBI file. So uh, uh, it says the Washington Post, having obtained 1,400 pages of the FBI file on Harvey, described it as an act of participatory journalism in his escapade, prompted the U.S. Attorney of Illinois to panel a grand jury. Wow, he was to consider espionage. <laughs> so he went on the bear on the air, and he suggested he'd been set up. So they declined uh, to indict Harvey. Harvey Harvey was smart. He went on radio. <laughs> but he got on ABC. Isn't that great that he got actually on ABC? That was back right, in the right. day when I was born, there was NBC, ABC, and CBS. And that was it. And in Monroe, Louisiana, yeah. we had KNOE, local channel. I need Mr. James A. No that started it, sat on his lap, and was on TV there as a child dancing for Mary Lou and Pat Young, and that's what we did. You know, we were little kids all thinking we were going to be Shirley Temple on TV. But Harvey, uh, I guess I never thought I'd be doing radio like this. I used to rip and read sports and uh, news at the University of Alabama, and then I did uh, reports in Hawaii. But I never thought I'd be doing to this extent as a historian. We've been doing this 10 years now. Jan's been with me. I I think it was uh, 2019. I'm not sure, but 2020 for sure. I need to go back and find out. But I did find where we had your name in 2020. Went by fast two years because you've been helping us. Uh, you remember when you came on? Uh, you and when did you and and uh, Green? It's Greenwood, isn't it? Barry Greenwood. Yeah. Right. That, that's, that was that's still when we were out in Chicago. That's when we started the scanning project. Yeah. What year was that? That was with I was with Revolution Radio, but I still had Blog Talk Radio. And I, I, I think Mike, that was uh, 2019 before COVID started. Yeah, 2019. So that's three, 19, 20, 21. Woo, we're going on three and a half, almost four years. Yeah, three and a half years. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've got oral reports here, but we're starting to do a weekly, I think, because Jan's not traveling as much as he was, but he just came back from a big scanning project in Houston at Rice University. Can you uh, can you explain for our listening audience, because they know I do different topics, different days of the week, and uh, tell them how do you – like Stanton T. Friedman was a physicist, but he helped me start the UFO Association. But, you know, I've, I've closed all those down. We've got the UFO Association and we've got UFOHQ.org for five years. But I'm just going to put the links because so many people have such good databases out there. And, you know, the Black Vault by John Greenwald is probably most popular now. But he put one of mine in, Alpha UFO Digest, one or two or more in his blog or in his domain or in his database, uh, John Greenwald. But 
Can you tell people what's the difference between those that collect for the Internet on their domains versus people like you, hardcore, going out and collecting the stories? Because you were actual assigned uh, reporter or investigator or researcher when you went with NICAP, but you were a young boy when you started with NICAP, weren't you? Sure, yeah, I was. So, so you've been doing um, this a long time. Even yeah, before I found you got my out first government. government document in 1958. Wow. I was only, so let's see, if I was born the last five days of 51, day after Christmas, so 52, I wouldn't even been one year old till December 26, 52. So, uh, so it was about the coast rockets and it was, it was in a, an official Swedish government release, um, news from Sweden. And it was about the ghost rockets and at, at our library, they had all these news releases from Sweden, official government news releases. And I looked in there, and there was a thing about ghost rockets in August of 1946. And it said that these things continue to be seen in, mostly in the center of the country. Um, and uh, the Swedish military was investigating. And so I made a copy of that, and I said, I said to myself, well, I got a I got a government document. It's not a United U.S. government document, but it's a, a a foreign government, and that was my first uh, first government document that I found. So does that? And, so uh, how old were you? Everybody, I talk, nobody's <laughs> seen that. I, I said, you know, I copied it out of the of the news release. Nobody had seen that. So do you And at the time in 1958 very little was known about the ghost rockets. I mean wow. there was some there was a, a book written in England England that had some information on them and there was there were other things and then Valet wrote his uh, anatomy of a phenomenon and he uh he uh, he had some he had some information on him, and uh, slowly things started to accumulate. Um, and then uh, uh, we found 100 U.S. documents from all classifications and from uh, the the CIA, um, the Army, the Navy the Air Force, the Army Air Force before the Air Force was formed, um, the SSU, which does not exist anymore. Um, all these government agencies were watching what was going on in Scandinavia and reporting back to Washington. And <clears throat> the way I found these documents was going to the National Archives and turning one page over at a time. Uh, so that's the big difference in, in uh, researching. And I used to do that type of work for, well, TRW, Record Data TRW, but yeah. for investigations or title searching, but not for UFOs. 
So the difference is you go out to the libraries that have clipped. Not every local paper has, or even local towns, because I lived in a town for 20 years in Kentucky that only had, like, weekly newspapers, you know, unless you wanted to get the big city 35 miles away in Owensboro. You went by the weekly newspaper to see what was going on. By that time, it was old news because everything traveled by people talking. It was, <laughs> But the Internet came along and the phones and Facebook, but that's a lot later. So all we had was to talk in the little towns in the rural areas. <laughs> so what in 46, they started the – it says here ghost rockets if you go by Wikipedia. I don't know how – I mean, we, we got to go – Wikipedia came along later with the Internet, I guess. It's still a nonprofit. But, you know, people, they would government and the educators were allowing kids to use this, I guess, and for a while in schools. And I think they pretty much put a stop to that as it just verbatim because it was coming out of so many people handling it out of the U.K. But uh, the, what do you know about when do you think ghost rockets? Now, according to Wikipedia, it says the first reports of ghost rockets were February 26th. 1946 by Finnish observers. So, like we said, folks, this is yeah, that's true. That's problem. true. Right, right. They, I found, uh, like I said, I found U.S. documents in uh, in the National Archives. Are 58? <clears throat> you, you found them in 58. Yeah. So, so they were. Um, how far back do you have a date prior to this? Ghost rockets in Sweden. Rocket are missile-shaped, unidentified flying objects in forty-six. Right. Well, they had they had another thing before the uh, Second World War. They had a they had what they called ghost airplanes, and they actually had inquiries in Parliament in the thirties about that. In the 30s. And then going back to the something? First World War, Sweden said that they forbid any Zeppelins from flying over Sweden. And, of course, the Germans said, we're not flying any Zeppelins over Sweden. But uh, so the people were seeing something before that. Um, when I got in touch with the Swedes, when I got yeah. in touch with the Swedes, now, they wanted to be neutral. They didn't want to get in the war, the Second World War. So uh, they established all around their borders uh, observation posts. And they also established artillery and interceptors. So American and German pilots would sometimes fly over Sweden. They, the planes would be uh, damaged. And the Swedes would force them down and inter the pilots. But they had this big observation, you know, people out there watching all the time. And some of the things they saw during the Second World War were not aircraft. And so uh, Anders Lillinger copies from the Swedish National Archives of these things. And he did a, a 
a uh, he sent me copies of Xerox, and he said he translated them. He said uh, it's not the best translation. So I uh, at, at the time I was doing Project 1947, I had money. So I got a professional translator to translate him. And so he, uh, uh, so I got a good translation of those. And they had other things that were happening, not seen by the observers, but by other people in Sweden, uh, Norway, and uh, Finland, Denmark. Uh, Denmark, of course, was under the Nazis, but uh, they were still seeing this kind of stuff in uh, those countries. I have a, a lighthouse report from Denmark. Uh, and so those things were being seen, and uh, a lot of them went to the uh, uh, archives for the for the unexplained in Sweden. So they have a giant archives there. Uh, which covers, uh, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things in Europe. So I didn't know they had so, an uh, S two division back in '44 with the Foo Fighters. They said it was uh, Foo was uh, in French, so I guess you could say it came out of uh, France. But the thing is, during World War II, they had a radar operator in the 415th Nighter Fighter Squadron. So the 415 members gave Foo Fighters the name. But Myers, it was Donald, uh, Squadron Donald J. Myers, he agreed uh, to give the Foo Fighters their name. But he was uh, from Chicago, and he read the strip comic in the Daily Chicago Tribune. So there's Chicago and the government and the papers, Chicago Tribune, the catchphrase, where there's food, there's fire. But uh, right. the French food food are for fire. But the mission, the briefing, uh, the Army during World War II, it's November 27, 44. It says this guy named uh, Fritz Ringwald. Now, both uh, Jan and I were in the, what's called the intelligence community inside military. S2, is uh, it says Fritz Ringwald, the unit's, S2 intelligence officer stated that Myers and Ed Schluter, Schluter with a SCHL, had sighted a red ball of fire. Now, Jan seen a green ball of fire that appeared to chase after them at a high speed. So Fritz and Myers was extremely agitated and had a copy of the comic strip in their back pocket. So he pulled it out and slammed it down to Fritz and said, I'll it was another one of those. Now, he said the F word, F and Foo Fighters, and stormed out of the debriefing room. So they knew back then, but they called them Foo Fighters. So, folks, Foo Fighter was before Flying Saucers is a famous name during World War II. But it says that for lack of a name, it stuck with the men in the 415th anyway. So they call them the F and, which you know what I'm saying, you know, it's like luck with an F. <laughs> Foo Fighters. So a press correspondent, now here's the press, because now I'm a member of the Society of Professional Journalists, Associated Press, Paris, France, okay, Bob Wilson was sent to the 415th, okay, outside of Dijon, France, 
to investigate the story for Associated Press. So he went over there, and the term was cleaned up because they had to put it in the newspaper, okay, to foo, F-O-O, foo fighters. So uh, that was the history of sanitizing uh, what we call effing up or what did I say? I said something that sounded better. But then also, if you remember, Jan, we said foobar in in the military, which – is a uh, meaning uh, messed up with an F like luck beyond all recognition. normal all filed up. That's the <laughs> that's the clean version. Fubar. So the French F E U for fire, folks. If you want to know, Foo Fighters in right. the Night Squadron of the Four Fifteenth. But but they, now, they, weren't, the they weren't the only, only ones. They weren't the only ones, and actually the got into the press back. Back in uh, October, 41. Um, the four, the four twenty second Night Fighter Squadron in uh, in the Netherlands, flying over the Netherlands, um, uh, they uh, they were seeing unknown unknown uh, lights at, at at and but their uh, their commander. Didn't want to hear about any kind of mystical lights, so they would report back to him that said, "Hey, we uh, we think we're seeing German night fighters uh, or uh, German rockets," and so he was happy with that. But he said, "I don't want to hear about any kind of mystical lights that you guys are seeing," so they were afraid to tell him that he be he. Uh, uh, he he became a general afterwards after the wars. Uh, general O. B. Johnson and uh, uh, one of my uh, associates interviewed him, and he said, "Yeah, I was pretty hard on the guys. I wanted I, I didn't want to hear about you know lights and things like that. So they told me they were probably German jets or uh, German rockets." So uh, he was the uh, his squadron was the first. In any case, here's what happened. What year kind was of that? Was that forty one? That was that was, was that before that was before before Ringwell started getting forty four. So it was in October of forty four. Okay, well September forty one, they saw a glowing green light, but that was by the Polish. No, it was before. Well then, then, then Pulaski, uh, yeah, the four twenty second saw him first. That yeah, it may be September. I'd, I'd have to look. And it was in of all places. Now I'm in Connecticut. It was in the New London Day newspaper. About so if it uh, makes the newspaper, uh, it makes it real. Four twenty two, four twenty second sees uh, strange lights in Germany. Well, can we establish what you guys are going by, the deep throat ufologist, <laughs> if you will, way back when? No, no, guys... let, me tell you what, let me tell you what happened. Okay. Uh, in 1943, they had these, uh, these bomber, uh, uh, they had, they had uh, bomber raids on Schweinfurt, Stuttgart, and Alphonsine, 
And during Jeez. the bomber raids, they saw these small discs coming through the formation. And uh, um, one of the discs at Stuttgart hit a plane, hit a B-17, and caught it on fire. So General uh, Ira Eckert, his initials are ICE, I-C-E. So everything that he signs, he also puts his initials somewhere on the message or something like that. So ICE reports back to General Arnold, who is in, who is the commander of the Army Air Forces. And he says, we had these things come over, and one of them hit uh, one of our bombers and started it on fire. So General Arnold was really upset about that. He said, well, they, you know, they're, what they're doing is they're flying over our aircraft and dropping uh aerial bombs into our aircraft formations. This is very dangerous. So he wrote to uh, Dr. Vanderbilt Bush, who was a main scientific advisor to the president, and also to uh, General Marshall, who was uh, head of the chief of the staff. And Arnold said this... This is very worrying because it's another way we're being attacked and uh, it could be very dangerous. And uh, both wrote back to uh, Arnold saying, um, uh, keep us informed, but we don't believe that this is a major problem. Well, Arnold now is very sensitive to things in the air that his Air Force is encountering. Now, this is 1943. So, 1944, he starts hearing about Foo Fighters. It's in the press. It's coming back. The censors in Europe are letting it through. Uh, Bob Wilson is writing his article. And uh, um, General Arnold has a, a special aid who's named Joe Chamberlain. He's a lieutenant colonel. And uh, he, uh, Chamberlain now, it's in, uh, it's in February and March. Chamberlain says, I want to go to Europe and, and, uh, and write up some articles for the newspapers. And uh, um, <clears throat> Arnold says, okay. He proved the TDY. They gave him a, a pistol, a jeep, and a driver, and he could go anywhere he wanted in uh, in Europe. And one of the first places he went was uh, was uh, uh, the four fifteenth Night Fighter Squadron. So he he was there. He questioned the pilots. He stayed with them for a couple of weeks. And he wrote down their accounts and their names and everything. He got the names of everybody in the unit so that he would remember them and checked off all the guys that had seen Foo Fighters. Also, while he was there, um, 
Ed Clark. Sergeant Ed Clark was a reporter for the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which was a uh, a military newspaper, which is still in existence today. It's for the troops, uh, and it's printed in Europe and uh, the Far East. Um, so he was a reporter for the uh, for the Stars and Stripes newspaper, and he wrote about the Foo Fighters. And on Christmas Eve on 1944, Ed Clark went on one of the missions with the 415th. Now they had there was a, they were two man. Uh, um, aircraft. In other words, they had two seaters. So Ed Clark had to stand up behind the the pilot and uh, look over his shoulder. He couldn't sit down. He had to stand up over the pilot <laughs> in back of the pilot. So on Christmas Eve, he saw one when they were up o- over over Germany. Now, Bob Wilson from the Associated Press, he he also stayed there for about two weeks and talked to everybody. So when the stories, if it's got Bob Wilson's um, uh, byline, you know that that is from talking to the pilots that were involved. Because he stayed there and uh, interviewed all the pilots, just like Joe Chamberlain did. So after the war was over, when Joe Chamberlain came back from Europe, uh, he asked permission to write about the Foo Fighters. So they said, okay. And what he did is he also asked... uh, intelligence to send him information about Foo Fighters and they were being seen in Japan. So he wrote an article about it and uh, intelligence censored it twice. They made him rewrite it twice. And when he finished, he sent a copy to Major Augsburg in Germany Augsperser, Augsperser. He was commander of the 415th. And Major Augsperser wrote back to Joe Chamberlain and said, essentially your article is accurate. Most of the pilots right now are taking R&R in Sweden, but they appreciate you telling their story. So then uh, Joe Chamberlain wrote up his article and it appeared in uh, December 1945 in the American Legion magazine. Now, almost nobody noticed it as far as from the UFO community until 1954. But there was there was this there was this story right there. 
Arnold also sent his scientific advisor in Europe to look into Foo Fighters. And not only did he do it in Europe, he went, you know, like to India, China, Japan, the Pacific, and he said, they're everywhere. Everywhere I went, people have been seeing these things. And he said, I I can't give you a conclusion as to what this is, but uh, this is the Foo Fighters. Okay, and one uh, one more thing. Oh, uh, Joe Chamberlain was not allowed to use his rank or his position. Now, he had been a magazine writer before the war, and um, stories about Al Capone, because his, his uh, brother was in the FBI, so uh, he had written stories about Al Capone in, in uh, national magazines and, and other things. He, you know, he was a regular magazine writer who was always in the magazines. So, but when he wrote for American Legion, he uh, he went ahead and uh, he could not use his rank or his position. So he's just a regular writer. Um, and uh, my friend was uh, interviewed him in the nineties. He was very old, and he said. And he lied to my friend. He said, oh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I was working uh, for General Arnold, and I asked the intelligence to bring me uh, some, some stories about Foo Fighters, and that's how I wrote the article. Why, you lying skunk. But that's the way they were. They didn't think they had to, you know, they weren't sure that they couldn't tell their story. So that's what he told um, uh, my friend. So uh, my friend says, unfortunately, Joe, you know, we were talking about Foo Fighters, and he, he knew I was interested in Foo Fighters. He said, uh, Joe Chamberlain's passed away, but his widow is still alive. And he told me his, his uh, notes and everything are in the basement. So, okay, so I I talked to his widow, and uh, his widow said, oh, yes, they may be in the basement, but I don't get down there very much. Um, and she had married Joe Chamberlain because they met because of his Air Force thing. She was in the uh, WAFs women uh, of the Air Corps. So they got married. They, he met her at the Pentagon, I think. Anyways, not only was Joe Chamberlain lying, his wife was a liar too. <laughs> the material was at the Library of Congress. Joe Chamberlain gave all his notes and everything and all his working time with Arnold his speeches that he wrote for Arnold and all this other stuff to the Library of Congress. But he wouldn't tell me that. I, I found out that from uh, uh, from somebody else that does FOIAs, 
and I went down to the Library of Congress and uh, got his material, and it was over at Fort Meade in storage. My so goodness. nobody knew it was over there except for, you know, the archivist there, the Library of Congress. So that's how I found out about Joe Chamberlain. They let you have it at Fort Meade just openly, or you had to No, I didn't copies? go to Fort Meade. They brought oh, it didn't? into Washington, D.C. It took me a week to see it. Wow. Can you explain that? I was stopping that? every day at the Library of Congress and say, is the, has the Chamberlain material come from Fort Meade? And uh, they tell me, no, it takes a while. So then uh, one day it came in, and, and I was just amazed. I was amazed. His notes, he had uh, he had everybody's name in the unit. He had the orders for everybody with everybody's name on it. He checked off the guys that had seen Foo Fighters. He had their stories written up. Uh, he had all kinds of official documents um, and other people he talked to. So uh, he talks in his article about meeting a uh, uh, not a night fighter squadron pilot, but a regular daytime fighter pilot, and he had his name in there. The guy's name was Pelham, and he was a captain and from Georgia, and he had seen uh, <clears throat> a silver ball during the day. So uh, they'd seen being seen at night and also during the daytime. And that uh, that was Joe Chamberlain. So um, uh, the uh, the chief scientist in Europe. Uh, Oh, why can't I remember his name? Any case, he wrote back to Arnold and he said, I, I don't know what these things are. And he gave an interview to Dr. McDonald where he told him about his 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 experiences with full fire. And then another one of my friends digging in the archives, uh his last name is Chester, Keith Chester, and he's written a book called um, Strange Company, which is about UFOs in the Second World War, or Foo Fighters, and it's a very good book. It's got some speculation in it I don't agree with, but basically he sticks to the facts. So Keith Chester wrote a book about Foo Fighters called Strange Company, and uh, he found a letter, which is on my website in 1945, if you look at historical reports, 1945, here is a letter from General McDonald, who is the chief of Air Force Intelligence in Europe after the war, and he identifies who investigated Foo Fighters. Name was Colonel O'Mara. Colonel O'Mara was in charge of the German scientists when we captured them after the war. And he was also in charge of the Foo Fighter investigation. And they, uh, General McDonald, in his letter to the Pentagon, said, 
We have talked to all these experts, scientists, and high-ranking Nazi officers <coughs> about Foo Fighters, and they said they had nothing to do with it. And McDonald said, as far as what Foo Fighters are, our investigation is inconclusive. So he was the same as the chief scientist over there. His two investigations that said it was inconclusive. And, of course, Joe Chambers said in his article, I don't know what the Foo Fighters were. So that's the Foo Fighters story. And uh, well, how do you guys separate? Food. How do you guys now, now people in England are going through the English archives and finding Foo Fighters or UFOs during World War Two. Let's put. Let's talk about what they really are. <laughs> In places that that people didn't know they existed before, from the Balkans, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, all all over the uh, Eastern Europe, Uh, plus Antonio Rivera, one of my um, guys that corresponded in Spain, now. You know, Spain was a, a sort of a fascist country, but they were they stayed out of World War II. But a lot of Spanish fascists volunteered to fight for Germany. So, um Antonio Rivera had this um, um letter from this one of the soldiers that was in Division or the Azor um, Division in Poland, and they were in a bunker and they were watching. There was a, a air battle going on overhead, and the Russians uh, were fighting an air battle. And he said, "We watched these from our bunker." And uh, as we looked skyward, we saw these strange disks overlooking. They were over the battle. And uh, he said, as if they were observing what's going on. And then he listed all the people that were in the bunker. And I'm saying, this is great. I said, Antonio, this is great. He said, yes. It was, it was, it was really uh, interesting that... And these people were actually in the, on the rush uh, on the rush uh, eastern front when they saw this. So uh, this is a different perspective of the UFOs and uh, and of course they were being seen on the ocean. Um, uh, ferry pilots take planes overseas. Um, were uh, were uh, saw them uh, both in the north North Atlantic 
this uh, this one uh, guy is a PhD, as a matter of fact, and uh, Haynes talked to him. Well, first of all, uh, we had a garbled story. Uh, it said it was in '43, uh, uh, I think it was. It was it was later. Um, you got a garbled story. That's, he, he uh, this guy had passed it on to stuff. Doctor Richard Hayes interviewed this guy, found out that he was a PhD. And both he and Haynes were PhDs, so they <clears throat> they had a little bit of an affinity for each other. And he said, "Yeah, these things were really funny." Uh, he said they flew on one side of the plane. And then they switched and went on to the other side of the plane, pacing the plane. And he said, I tried to take um, maneuvers to shake them off, and they stayed with me all the time. So that's the North Atlantic. So this guy in New Orleans... um, he had a story about Foo Fighters. He was flying from Brazil across the South Atlantic to Africa, and then they were flying the planes to Italy or to uh, North Africa and then to Italy in the war. So he was he was on a thing there, and he had uh, Foo Fighters come straight at him like you were on a collision course, and he reported that. So they they were seen all over the world. They were seen all over the world. They were seen in the Pacific. Um, So Australian Air Force guys were on, uh, I think it was Saipan, uh, and... uh, they used to uh, try to, after duty hours, you know, it's so hot there. They they tried to, you know, swim in the ocean, you know, to cool off or something. They're swimming in the ocean, and they they came out of the ocean, and they looked up, and there's this thing, huge thing in the clouds, like a zeppelin. That's what they, they called it. They said, it looks like a zeppelin. And so that's, you know, um, there's other... Uh, Foo Fighters in the uh, uh, in the uh, New Zealand archives. Um, this one fellow, this one night fighter squadron, saw them in Tunisia. They didn't call them Foo Fighters, and this was 1943. They called them the the light, the light. And, they just called it the uh, light in, in the sky the, or just the light? Just the light. <laughs> is it written? Just the He's light. got in his log. He's got in his log. So this is where this is how we could establish the date. He's still got his log. And it says, Tonight I encountered quotation marks the light. Unquotation. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what so I that's saw what he called the light. Now, now, um, <laughs> this Rochester, other, so this, there's two red lights coming uh, out of this, it. This guy, this is, this is, this is early. This is 1942. 
Um, uh, this uh, pilot named Lamister, he's flying to France. And he's over the, uh, I think it's the Seine Estuary. And uh, he also gets, they come straight at him. And he says, you know, he, he says these things came straight at him. So I guess he was friendly with the squadron commander. So the squadron commander, you know, gave him, a, you know, he's kind of kidding him. He says, okay, we're going to call these the Lamister light, Lights. That's what we're going to call them. And everybody was making fun of them, except the commander was out a couple of days later, and he's flying to France in, uh, in a night fighter, and he saw them too. And he said that was the end of kidding about the Lamister lights. <laughs> Huh. Well, how you know we documentation? It, it was all based on prior military sightings. Is that what do you? How do you separate you and Barry Greenwood or whoever's doing all this classification? Are you separating them first? I know you you're using years, but how are you doing it with the libraries and with you scanning all this to put into the? Uh, either Canada or the New Mexico libraries while you've got what you can on or the your Brazilian own library. I got Barry Greenwood got 600 clippings from the 40s, the 50s, and the early 60s from the Brazilian National Library. So he's got copies of, of original of, like, of newspaper articles. Is it on microfish? Uh, no, or? they have them online. They have them huh. online. People in Brazil don't know how to do this. Greenwood figured yeah. it out for himself. He's got all these 6,000 clippings from Brazilian newspapers, and some of them are from Brazilian magazines, too. Some of them are quite long, <clears throat> illustrated and everything with drawings and uh, things like that. And uh, he doesn't even read Portuguese. So, uh, wow. But he figured out the names for, uh, you know, fly, flying saucers changed, like, you know, became UFOs. And so he's got the names for them. And so he, he found, uh, and they've got hundreds of newspapers at the National Archives of Brazil. So Greenwood is got over 6,000 clippings well, from Brazil. Out of 100, and we out can't of 100, even read them. <laughs> well, it's okay. We can translate it sooner or later, get it in Google Translator maybe. But how are we, we going to do 195 countries? I've only found one guy that says he's got a company with 136. I'm trying to find how to translate all the languages and a lot of my translators are shy. They don't want to be in the UFO business or the radio business or the broadcast business. <laughs> they don't want to help me. <laughs> A lot of people that are well, nice. So, you know, some people, uh, you know, it, it's usually in and out. It's, you know, somebody volunteers to translate Italian, 
and she does it for a couple of months, and then she goes on to something else. So right. I, I guess things course. translated like that. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, the Swedish uh, Foo Fighter uh, document I got uh, uh, from the uh, the uh, aerial observers, the, the their logs, that was translated by a professional translator um, who's uh, fluent in Swedish. Um, the uh, the British uh, Museum and the British um, Archives, they've got things from all over the world, too. So they're a good source. Uh, so uh, Southern Rhodesia, 1952, December. And this is when Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, was still a colony of Britain. So one of the colonial um, officials is taking a trip north in what is now Zimbabwe, but at the time was southern Rhodesia, and he doesn't notice for, for a while. He's got one of his uh, – now, he's an official in the in the colonial government, so he's got a, 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 a native servant with him, uh, or let's put it this way, he's a he, – He's an assistant. He's an assistant because he's he's part of the uh, you know he's part of the government too. He's he's like a clerk and uh, uh, things like that. So they're going north. So the passenger saw the object first. It's low down. And this is 1952, December now. Remember, there's not very many close approaches in 1952. And this is a close approach in the middle of Africa. So the thing is leading them up the road. And this guy finally notices it, and then his assistant says, Oh, I uh, yeah, I've been watching it. We've been, it's been, uh, it's, been in front of us for the last 20 miles or so. They stop at a gas station and they're watching it. And as they start up again, it it's in front of them, you know, low down over the road. And it's, it's kind of leading them and finally it disappears. And that's in an official government document for the Southern Rhodesian Colonial administration. Um, we found out about that in an article in South uh, South Africa in in one of the magazines down there. So uh, Barry Greenwood wrote to the British Museum, and uh, they sent a copy of that article to us right out of the colonial. Uh, it's a colonial newsletter, so it's a government newsletter from from South Asia, and uh, uh, they said no charge. Well, thank you very much. 
So that's the, you know that's how we get things. It's just. Uh, uh, and there's um, so far about 45 governments have released official documents about UFOs from the Second World War and afterwards. So, um, and so in some cases, it's just one or two things. <laughs> so the Fijian government. The government of the Fiji Islands put out a notice about a UFO seen in Fiji. I think it was in 56. We're trying to get a copy. We don't have a copy, but we know about it. And also, 1954, the government of Egypt put out a press release from the Washington from their Washington embassy about UFOs in Egypt, descriptions of UFOs in Egypt, uh, I, I, I asked the Library of Congress and the National Archives if they had it. They don't. But it was in one of the newspapers in uh, down in uh, Pennsylvania, of all places, that had a description of what the article said. It didn't have the article, the uh, press release, but it did have some of the information of it. And so uh, there, there's a lot of government documents that have been released. Um, back when NICAP was in existence. So, um, Richard Hall, who's the assistant director, he's sitting in his office. He gets a call from the State Department. State this this guy from the State Department says, "Hey, we have two two television producers that want to talk to you about UFOs." And he said, "I will I will bring them over and translate for you." And so. Uh, uh, they call says fine. I'm I'm very happy to talk to to uh, to uh, television reporters from uh, or producers from Argentina. Be uh, very happy to talk to them. And so these two guys come over and they take out their credentials and they're from the Argentine Air Force Intelligence. <laughs> and they say we are interested we're having a lot of UFO being seen in Argentina it's become a problem we want to <laughs> no set up something like NICAP in Argentina we, ah. would want you, we want your you, we want your advice and we would like to send you some of our reports and so that's what they did. They started getting packets of UFO reports. A lot of them were press reports translated into English from the air attache at of the embassy in Washington. 
Later on, the same thing happened with the uh, Argentine Navy. Um, so the Argentine Navy started sending reports also of what they were getting. That's how I uh, that's how I knew there were two UFO official things in Argentina, and then Richard Greenwell. He confirmed that because he visited both of them from APRO when he was so. Uh, I guess you could say we have no the, geographic The, the history barriers. of ufology is <laughs> has not been written yet. Okay. It's not completely well, written yet. There's all this stuff that's going on in the background that people don't know about. Historical recordings by individuals. If we can just find out who all the who's who with the goods, you know, or with at least the information historically speaking. I've got a spoke life, you know, for historians and folklorists, but we work with nonprofits inside, you know, National Archives or uh ARSC News, you know, and uh working together and after the pandemic we all got dispersed. And then in America, the uh, complication in social media with Facebook and, you know, FCC and rules and regs and who could talk about what politically. And then YouTube and all our UFO people were fighting and fighting and the historians and journalists and Linda Moulton Howe and Carrie Cassidy and David Wilcock and, I don't know, all these people with the different, you know, speakers at these UFO people whether they were real journalists or were they not, or were they real speakers or were they not. So you want to help us in this UFO association? I mean, just, I don't understand these, how we're going to do all these separate committees yet. We're have no barriers. We have no, we're, we're not land going by plates, I guess, with plates from the, yeah. On the plane. Well, I, I told you about the I told you about the Australian. Uh, the Australia the American Air Force requested UFO reports from Australia fifty three fifty four. They got some back to nineteen fifty one. Well, are you only concerned? Um, I mean, we've got your project nineteen forty seven, but Bill, uh, where how are we linking all this? together in the world there is no global 195 country no, united nations so, of ufo um, clubs <laughs> or groups so so 1954 the 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 material from australia stopped in may this to me seems okay. very strange why 54 because then yeah, 54. So then here's what happened. The uh, the rocket test site in Australia is named Woomera. And when did we put the, Pine Gap over there? Huh? <laughs> when did we put Pine Gap so anyways, over there? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'll look it up. So... Uh, so, like I said, Basterfield, Keith Basterfield is digging through the 
um, through the Australian stuff, and they have, you know, different departments have information. So in 1954, they started having UFO sightings at the uh, at the the rocket testing center in Woomera. Radar and visual. Uh, Project Blue Book is not getting these things. They were in what's called the the. Uh, not the Ministry of Supply. Maybe it was the Ministry of Supply. Anyways, uh, there's a whole bunch of sightings at Woomera. I mean, you're seeing them all the time out there, and they're very uh, detailed, and they're also, they've got, you know, radar sightings also. And I'm saying, I'll bet you the U.S. government got these, but they're hiding them. But here we got them from the uh, Ministry of Supply. And then I'm looking at something that Basterfield read and said, well, he's missing a couple of files from his Ministry of Supply, which apparently have UFO sightings in it from Woomera. So there's still stuff to find. Well, they built that <laughs> so, in 1966. So I, asked, I asked Keith, I, I said, uh, Keith, uh, um, uh, what about this Woomera stuff? And he said, well, I'm sending you a list. He said, I made a list of sightings at Woomera, and you can put it on your Project 1947. And I said, Keith, you know this is becoming the uh, Keith Basterfield website, and I'm just here, and you're putting all this in there from Australia. You're taking taking over. <laughs> so yeah. what he has done is he's he's given me all kinds of um, uh, databases from Australia, you know, like uh, <laughs> UFOs from Southern Australia, uh, 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 electromagnetic effects, best cases from Australia, and if you go to my uh, the uh, the uh, Project 47, also known as the Keith Basterfield website, uh, look for catalogs. And Keith's got a whole bunch of them up there. Catalogs of electromagnetic effects, uh, close encounters, um, best cases in Australia, cases in South Australia, um, so that's, uh, uh, like I say, uh, it's becoming his website cause he puts so much stuff on there, but I'm, I'm glad to have it. I'm glad yeah, to have it. Well, as long as you've got a database that people can reach on the internet for open source. Sure. You've got, uh, you have a privacy dashboard for you and he, or? Does he run the dashboard? Uh, Who's your administrator? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a good friend of my uh, John Stepkowski, my uh, webmaster. So that's that's why we get all this stuff. Um, we we do communicate. Yeah. He, uh, 
So uh, there was one sighting in Australia in 1967, which is the Billabook uh, Brook sighting, which is a, 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 a one of these uh, CE1s, one of these close encounters. And uh, so uh, Barry's looking in. He was he was at the uh, post. He's the one that started the scanning thing. So he's there the oh. first first time he went out there. I wasn't there that day. So I said, hey, look at this. Uh, uh, I've got this thing from Kufos that uh, Diana Sinclair Knopp, who was uh, like the administrative, um, she was in charge of administration at uh, NICAP. And I, I I copied this letter when I was at Kufo. Said she's right. I said she's writing to this the police department in uh, in this Western Australian town about this sighting. Can you see if there's anything in there? And so he says, Yeah, I got the file for that case. Um. It's got some letters in it, and it's got some clippings, but I don't see anything from the police department. So I asked Keith Basterfield, and he says, yeah, that's a very famous sighting in Australia. Uh, that, that, that's one of the best sightings we have. And he said, I went to the police department, and they don't have a copy of the police report anymore. And so uh, I said, oh, well. And Barry calls me up about three days later, and he says, I found the Australian police report in the NICAP files here. They sent it to NICAP. So these are the kind of things that happen once you're gathering this stuff together and putting it in an order. You know, it may be out of order. So that was that was not in the uh, Bill Buck Brook uh, file. It was in a, uh, just a general Australian file. So now it's with the Australian stuff, and now the Australians in Australia have a copy of the police report. So that's to, to me that that kind of thing is all synchronicity. How is this stuff so Keith happening? Do you know Keith Basterfield personally? Keith Basterfield. Well, but we never met. I, I, you know, we we correspond together all the time. His stuff is okay. on my website. So he wrote about some things in Adelaide, where they had a two-way communication with a guy with an implant in his ear, and he had out-of-body experience, but he was on board a UFO. Now, would that be considered alienology versus ufology? Well, that does, we got a gray line. In yeah, there. he, he when, investigates everything. He investigates uh, um, abductions, and he's got a list of abduction files. Um, and he's got, uh, he, like I say, he has all kinds of databases. 
So you can go and let me see. I, I think I got one of them right here. It's about electromagnetic effects. He's mentioned in the Pine Gap story. Let's see where this is. Because I was looking at Pine is, Gap. It's su- it, it, it is a super secret. It was a super secret installation in Australia that belonged to the United States. Now it's a joint or... Maybe the Australians have completely taken it over, but well, at the time there was a uh, made. They still have the the at night in the middle of the Australian uh, continent, I guess one might say, you know, the Pacific and Indian Ocean. But right in the middle, folks, at night you can see the lights on the satellites. So the facility is still there, and it's for intelligence, but it was mainly the spy on the Russians at one time back in 66. So it's near Alice Springs, Ayers Rock, McDonald Ranges. Yeah, yeah. And, it it uh, does right other things. It, it, keep, it keeps in touch with the, uh, All those with the U.S. submarines oh. Oh, in yeah, the that's Pacific important. and the Indian Ocean. So yeah, it's a, it's a multi- it's a multi-purpose thing. It's very important to the uh, U.S. defense. Well, that's why the UFOs with nuclear, they've had some UFO sightings there. Uh, they said there was a UFO blue beam, a slow extended rod, lighter being extracted. They've seen uh, doors open like in Dulce or there where they fly the, into the side of the mountain. Let me see in Pine Gap in Australia, but the you do y'all have yeah, those? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stories like that, but as far as official stuff, there's not that much. So now, what's the difference? Tell people between what's written on the internet. Now this is on Pine Gap, Australia, Biblioteca Pleiades, P-L-E-Y-A-D-E-S dot net. I noticed that the plot from years and years ago on the internet, but I don't know who owns it. But they talk about Aurora Craft, secret technology at Pine Gap. What is Pine Gap? Top brass at Pine Gap. Let me see at the bottom of it. Well, if, they, uh, if, you, if you read uh, Ross Colhart, uh, he's written a book. He's an Australian journalist. Tim Schwartz. He's an award. He's award-winning Australian journalist. His book, it's called "The Hide in Plain Sight," which, of course, I I I also say this too. A lot of this UFO material is available, except people don't go and look for it. Like I said, I went yes. to the National Archives. And I found things just by turning one page at a time, turning them over. Because right. these People things are really intermixed with other other documents. Sometimes they're intermixed with other documents. So Russ Colher wrote the uh, uh, Hide in Plain Sight, which is a, a new book. It's only been out a couple of years now. And he wrote about pine... Uh, the uh, U.S. installation down there. And he wrote about an Australian woman. Um, uh, they're having a goodbye party. 
and uh, she uh, she's at this party, and she gets a ride home, uh, and they see something right outside of this installation. So uh, I guess she reported it or something. Anyway, later on they pick her up and take her to the installation. Uh, she's the guys that gave her a ride are in there, and they're being questioned, and they look scared, and they're not happy at all. And she goes in there. She's also questioned, and it's not by all. It's not by the Australian intelligence or or Australian security. It's by Americans, and they're very unhappy that she saw this stuff and reported it. And she's she's rather scrappy, so she stands up for herself. And these other guys are saying, "Don't say anything. We're in trouble already." <laughs> But she gives as good as she got. So she was, um, said, we saw it. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to drill our heads and take the information out? We saw it. But the thing was, here they are in Australia, and the Americans are the ones that are running the interview. Well, do you think Star Wars... And that's in Ross, Ross... uh, Ross Colehart's book. Well, uh, I've got that's a, that's a that's a good book to get. Um, All right, tell everybody the name of it one more time. And the uh, in Russ- plain sight. Okay. And he uh, um, that New Zealand uh, UFO case. That Bruce Maccabee investigated. Yeah. In New Zealand. So they're saying it's lights from the fishing boats, and they've got they've got all kinds of explanations for it. So Ross says in the book, he says I was at the aircraft control during that sighting and it was seen on radar so from fishing vessels so that story doesn't hold water he said because they were on the 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 UFOs were picked up by radar so it's an interesting book and you know uh, Bruce McAbee spent a, a long time in Australia, uh, in, excuse me, in New Zealand, uh, analyzing that case. So, uh, yeah, they uh, they tried all the explanations they could say, but if it's lights, lights don't get picked up on radar. Unless there's an object up there to pick them up, to pick up. So it wasn't lights from fishing vessels. Um, 
So that's one reason I got his book because he reveals that in his book. He said, I was at, I was there, I saw it. And he's, he's got ins into the Australian intelligence being a reporter. And he says, there's more stuff here than what they've given like to Keith and, uh, uh, Bill Chalker. They've still got stuff. And we're finding that out as they go along. The people down there are, um, they're coming up with more stuff all the time. Ross uh, Coulthard. How do you spell his yeah. name? C-O-U-L-T-H-A-R-T? Yeah, something like that. that. I, I I don't have his book right here in front of me. Okay, Wait, but it's about, he's an investigative journalist on UFOs, also known as UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, so orbs, black triangles, discs. Some of them are made by our governments around the world. Some are not. So it's up to you to decide when you read his book, uh, The UFO Phenomena uh, in Plain Sight. There's so many people doing UFOs now. It's very popular on the Internet. It's uh, entertainment. It's education. Uh, there's information, misinformation, and disinformation in just about every genre, category, topic, keyword, uh, hashtag <laughs> out there. So it's up to you to discern and perceive. And, uh, you know, whatever you resonate with, you can keep it for your yeah, own. Yeah, Ross and, and, Ross and I have, have uh, we've uh, traded uh, emails and everything. Yeah. So, so he's... Most people know who Jan Aldrich is. He's primarily primarily a journalist. Yeah. I don't have a primary cap. I don't really think you do either. (laughs) But we're in the UFO community, but we were more undercover behind the lines or in the vaults or (laughs) in uniform, out of uniform, (laughs) running around looking for stuff, whether we got paid or not. But, uh, you know, we say we're not mind-controlled, but people hate us because we wore uniforms and took an oath to fight for our government. But, you know, it depends on what side of the coin you're on, folks. You know, render to Caesar what is Caesar, so to speak. But the intelligence agency and the National Reconnaissance Office, they've got one Pine Gap near Alice Springs in Australia. And uh, I'm still wondering how we're going to, I mean, they run from satellites since Star Wars. You know, we were supposed to be able to track all the nukes and the satellites and all that. And now we got Elon Musk, independent contractor out there running around, civilian. Who knows what's up there now? Starlink's coming to help us in all the rural areas. So I guess when NASA said that we were accepting government contractors and civilian people, it's because... They could get it done faster and cheaper than NASA could, which strange. <laughs> well, uh, Elon Musk, see, uh, Von Braun, Von Braun in, uh, in the early 50s, he said the best way to do rocketry is to reuse, find some way to recover and reuse the first and second stages of the rockets if you can. Right. Now, 
So the well, if if the, the Russians the companies in the United so States, uh, um, Boeing and all these other guys, when their uh, lower stages are done, they fall in the ocean. That's it. They don't try to recover. Musk said, "I'm going to recover them and reuse them," which is what Bob Brown said. In the early 50s, that's the way we should do it. He said it would be a lot cheaper. And so Musk can build his rockets because he recovers them cheaper. (laughs) And so he can do what he's doing cheaper. I heard he's buying Mercedes. And so he saves the government money with his contracts because he's reusing a good part of his rocket. Once he once uh, he delivers like to the space that. station or puts thing in things in orbit. Hey, do you know he gave my uh, grandson uh, Tesla? <laughs> really? He didn't give it to him. My, my grandson won it. Yeah, <laughs> he won a Tesla. So that's big news in our family. Yeah. He put his name right. in, and he was a young kid, and they were looking for his look, 25-year-old or so, so he won a Tesla. So I like Elon Musk giving my grandson a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the taxes alone were like $20,000 or something. And yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, my son got a Tesla. He bought, Oh, wow. And he's in Texas. So uh, he's got uh, um, uh, solar uh, solar panels on his roof. So when yeah. he comes home, that's how he recharges his Tesla <laughs> using the solar no, panels. When he goes home to Texas, well, where does he drive his Tesla? Does he work he's for Elon Texas. Musk? He's he, he's going. My son has. Uh, a medical practice in Texas. How oh, is he a doctor? So he drives a Tesla. He bought a Tesla. He uses solar panels to power to uh, charge it. Well, what's your son's? Can you? Is he a public figure, or is he doesn't like you to mention his name? Do you have permission? He's he's in. Well, he's just in. You know, he's he does. Uh, accident rehabilitation of people that have been in accidents. But are you he allowed to say his name? He also works for insurance companies. He evaluates he evaluates uh, medical problems that people have had from accidents, injuries, and things like that. Wow. Well, are you allowed to say his name in in your radio broadcast, or is he an anti? Yeah, he's in UFO? he's in uh, he's in Dallas, and his name is uh, Daniel Parnell. So we wouldn't know if you hadn't have told us that. Right. Now, uh, and is since his... he has a different last name than I do, we yeah. uh, uh, I told the lawyer, I said, this is going to be a problem because if he comes up here after, <laughs> after I pass away, 
he may have problems. And the lawyer said, we'll put it in the will as to how he got a different last name. So, Is it and the lawyer worded it very nicely. And I, I, I thank the lawyer for doing that. And so now he's got, he's identified in the will. And the lawyer said, have him come to me first if he has any trouble. And so he's got my son's credentials and identification, so there should be no problem. Well, how do you spell Barney? When I pass away, he gets myself. But it's because of his mixed background, Barnell, B-A-R-N-E-L-L. Is that right? Pennell, Pennell. Oh, Pennell, not B. Yeah, yeah. Pennell, so, P-A-N-N-E-L. Yeah, everybody doesn't take their names. Really? When they How get married. Oh. People don't necessarily take, you know, not every woman takes the husband's name or the husband doesn't take the woman's name or they don't combine the names. Yes. So the woman that Some you're married to. Some people use their, if they get married, they use their own name. So when he was born, he had your wife's name. And right. Human, human speaking. They were, uh, she was a woman of strong mind, and it could have been her religious background. Uh, but that's a choice, right? So, well, yeah, it's your age. Choice, then. Yeah, well, when we got married in Hawaii, that's what they asked us. Anyway, oh. we, uh, we got married in Hawaii, and uh, the clerk asked you. Uh, and she didn't want to change her, do you, her name. Do you, want, do you want his name or your name and his name or his name and your name? Uh or your own name uh, on the uh, on the marriage license. So that's where we got married in Hawaii, and we went by their laws. And she says, "I want I want to keep my own name." So that's fine. P A. But how do you spell it? Is it one N? Our panel is P A N E L. Is it P A N N E L or E L L? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two L's, two N's. Yep. Adina. Yes, Daniel that's Pennell. what it is. So he, sure. uh, but he's not the producer actor, Daniel Pinnell, because we have one no, of those. No, 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 no. Okay, well, I don't see him uh, listed on Google. So is he a public figure, or do you think he has a Facebook? We could know who he is. He has a, a Facebook for his for his business. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, well, good. I mean, you don't know that many people going around driving a Tesla, and I'm really not going right. to know. Right. He's very successful. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need my money. He's he's very successful. He has his his own money, and he's very. Um, but I'm I'm transferring stuff to him, and uh, I'm going to give him the house, and with the proviso that I live in live it till I die. 
And uh, so he'll get the house afterwards. And It says we have one mutual friend, so I guess he's my friend and he's your friend. He may be. <laughs> How do you know? How did he become my friend? That's amazing. It says Daniel you. Pinnell is your friend. My thing, so he... Oh, wait a minute. Mutual. Yeah, he must be on your thing. Says mutual friend, Jan Aldrich. Huh. So he must so have maybe found he out is on your site. Wow. I didn't know I was a friend I probably of probably just outed him. He probably didn't want people to know that. <laughs> well, Daniel Pinnell, you little son of a gun, you're a friend of mine. How about that? Of TJ Marcy T Radio or TJ Morris or Teresa J. Morris or DJ Thurman Morris. I don't know. It says he and I have a mutual friend and it shows Jan Aldrich, folks. Oh, we had and Jan and I have hundred and sixty one mutual friends. So we're we're really up there, Jan. You and I, hundred and sixty one. Yeah. It seems like we have more in the UFO industry, doesn't it? But uh, I'm glad yeah, we I'm have mutual friends. I'm surprised that many times the, the number of people. Um, this uh, Chinese woman, she says, you come up as a recommendation for me all the time. And she's a very young woman. I said, I, I can't <laughs> understand why that would be. I said, are you interested in UFOs? And she said, no, not really. She says, I, I, I look at them. I said, well, we have a huge amount of you, uh, mutual friends. Huh. Um, so, and I'm saying, well, what, what exactly is going on here? How come we yeah. have so many? But you, I, you, I guess you never know. I've never seen your son. I didn't think I had, but it says we're mutual friends. And, uh, okay, well, how about that? But he's a very nice-looking young man. Does this, he has three sons. Is that his sons on his Facebook page? Three sons and a daughter. I don't see the baby girl. Uh, I guess he hasn't got no, well, them out No, she's just here. born. That's, I'm going oh. down there Friday. I'm going oh, down there Friday wow. to meet her. Oh, so we'll miss next Friday then, unless you're going to do a, a yeah, show. Yeah, that's right. Room. We'll have to miss next Friday because... Yeah, I'm going down there to see my granddaughter. Okay, so how long I, are you going to be gone? I told, I, I, I told my daughter-in-law, if you have another boy, leave him at the hospital. I want a girl. <laughs> so she had one. <laughs> yeah. You're, oh, well, congratulations, Grandpa. Her, her family so, wanted a, a, a girl also. Well, aren't they you said, fancy they, now, they, to Dallas? Me, pressure on me to have a girl, and I said, "Well, do what you want to do. Don't don't give in to family pressure. If you don't want to have another child, I said three is plenty." Well, she's married to a beautiful woman. She's gorgeous. I bet they make and they make great looking children. So, congratulations on such a yeah, handsome so family. She, uh, yeah, very handsome uh, children. <laughs> so we're going to so miss I you admire, next week. Yeah, she's she she's very smart and uh, 
her family background is very interesting and um uh they are uh, uh big in the community and uh um he's very lucky yes, I can see that very so he uh but uh well. I like being human, and I like having friends, and I'm glad you're doing the kind of work you're doing. And uh, let me look at your site here. It says we have mutual. Jan Aldrich, folks, is who you've been listening to on TJ Mars ET Radio. We've been around 10 years on this uh, particular channel. I also have cyberspace culture, but uh, Jan Aldrich has been around as a ufologist, I guess since 1958. <laughs> yeah. I guess the basement office listening to he's uh he is the one that's uh, keeping us uh real, I guess one might say. And uh we have uh, UFO Association and UAP Associates. I have the ACO Association, Ace Folk Life. So we have folk life journalists, artists, authors consultants, agents, and even we had organizers for a long time that were doing uh, events everywhere, but we've sort of gone on webinars now, people teaching direct. Everybody seems to have their own podcast and all that, but if you want to be involved with us, just let us know. We're open source information, and Jan Aldrich is who you've been listening to tonight. And I think we're just about out of time. I might you want to go check. I'm a, I'm all involved now looking at your site. I think you ran overtime, maybe. Yeah, but Project 1947. Now, Jan, since we you're going to be gone all next week, how long are you going to be on vacation in Dallas, Texas, with your granddaughter? Well, I'm going I'm going down there on Friday. So you'll be gone what a week or two weeks? How many Fridays? Yeah. I'll be there for for a little while, and then I come home. Oh, so yeah. you don't really want to say because of yeah, security. Yeah, I, yeah, people. I want to see her, and I, you know, it's pretty hectic with a new baby. <laughs> well, Plus, maybe you all can. Her, all her children are young, so well, maybe uh, you can play with the boys or change a few diapers. <laughs> we'll just. Uh, <laughs> so how old is she? Yeah, Kate they they. Uh, yeah, we're we're uh, uh, Grandpa and the boys have a conspiracy together, so. Uh, okay, that should be fun. Well, I'm looking so. forward to you coming back. Well, folks, we don't know when we'll return. Uh, I may get somebody to fill in or something from another. We've got our various groups and free social media. We've got right. cyberspace culture, UFO secret space group, and. Uh, various associates, so we'll just do what we can and stay in touch because I've got his phone number. <laughs> I've got his number. So, we'll so after, after the 4th of July, after the 4th of July, oh, well, there I'm go. going okay. to the University of Wyoming. Oh, goodness. And I'm so going to be long? up there for at least five weeks. Oh, my. Maybe longer. Oh, my. So we may be doing without you for quite a while. Yeah, because I'm going to the uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Haynes 
uh, files are up at we're at Rice University, but uh, his collection of three thousand over three thousand uh, sightings from air crews. Excuse me, air crews. <laughs> are at the University of Wyoming. So I want to go up there and look at his material. Now, at Kufos, we have a lot of his uh, case files, but uh, we don't have a complete set, so I want to go there and look, see what he's got. And uh, I already have uh, what Weinstein got, so I will be including his files into uh, the Kufos files. So it's another person's uh, files. We've got, we've got so many, uh, the Kufos files are growing by leaps and bounds. Let's put, put it that way. Well, that's good. I'm sure. Antonio Huenas's recent, um uh material uh amounts to uh um eighty eight boxes so you know two filing cabinets full of case files and lots of books uh, lots of clippings lots of magazine articles from all over the world so um, those are being um, uh, uh, consolidated or amalgamated with Kufos files, so that makes a big deal right there. And I've sent myself uh, 43 files or 43 boxes of material. So that's also made the Kufos material much much bigger. So this the the uh, the files are getting bigger and bigger. Well, I guess that's what we do as archivists and researchers, historians, and the libraries know who you are, but other than that, they probably don't even know who you are really when you get there, but after you sit there for a week <laughs> in the back going through the, uh, lots and lots the of The mayor paperwork. is very happy to have us there. And, well, that's uh, good. He he thinks that 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 that's very interesting. The uh, the University of New Mexico is very happy that we're doing this. So, uh, um, uh, and uh, David's given a talk at the University of New Mexico, and they asked him for the mayor says Asking. we want to do some. Listening Oops, with. I lost you. So, what'd you say? There will be, uh, um, so, um, uh, yeah, David had a big uh, article in the Albuquerque newspaper about his, about Kufus and things like that. So, this stuff now. Something's funny happening. I guess 
Okay. I guess we're off the air. Uh, so, well, I guess we ought to go because it's starting to mess up. So it was very enjoyable. I don't know how long this is, but I think we got our almost got our two hours worth, but we're definitely it's definitely counting down the other way. So minus six minutes. So I guess we ought to. So we won't get you next week. We won't have a UFO Association reporter from Jan Aldrich. Yeah, we can have the week after because I won't be I won't be going to the uh, um, University of Wyoming until uh, I think the tenth. I think that's the day I plan to get. The tenth. Okay. All right. Well. Uh, all right. Yep. Miss one Friday. Be back, folks. So we'll skip next Friday. I'll probably be on Sunday, but we'll see. And uh, I've had a couple of calls from people that want to do the Tuesday and the cyberspace culture. So we'll play it by ear. So, you know, we're always happy to have anything to do with Jan Aldrich and the UFO Association and Coupas and MUFON and anybody else out there, uh, the UFO Evidence Investigation, anybody that's got a LinkedIn UFO Secret Space, and we've got social media groups out there working together. So uh, keep it real, folks. And the UFO Association Project of Social Networking Stories, Audio and Video Files, we're open source information. Just doing our best to get the word out, uh, not getting rich over it. In other words, we're not making any money at it. So if you want to help us out, please let us know. Pay the overhead. Basically, I pay the overhead and that's okay, because I like doing what I do. It's my hobby. <laughs> Been doing it 10 years. Well, love and light, everybody. And, uh, Jan, I you have a great time in Dallas with your family and your new grandbaby girl. And take lots of pictures and post them on Facebook for us. And we'll see you Friday after next, okay? Okay. All right. Thank you so much for your reports as usual. Say hello to your family and let them know. We all love you out here in OCO Press land. Thank you. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Bye-bye. All right.